we must say to those who tell us to cool off that we can't cool off because of our self-respect, because we love America too much. They tell us to adopt a policy of gradualism, and we've often adopted that policy only to discover that gradualism is little more than a do-nothingism and an escapism which ends up in standstillism. We must say to the nation at this moment, now is the time to make real the promises of democracy. Now is the time to transform the dark yesterdays of man's inhumanity to man into the bright tomorrows of justice and freedom. Now is the time to get rid of segregation and discrimination. Now is the time to straighten up Gerard College. Now is the time to give freedom. Now is the time to grant freedom to the Negro all over the United States of America. Now is the time to make America a greater nation. So I say to you, don't wait until next week to get in this struggle in Philadelphia. Don't wait until tomorrow morning to get in this struggle in Philadelphia. Don't wait until an hour from now to get in this struggle to make this city in our nation the greatest city in a greater nation. Get in this struggle at this moment, recognizing a tiny little minute, just 60 seconds in it. Welcome to Story Search from Special Collections, a podcast series exploring stories based on, inspired by, or connected to material artifacts, hosted by me, Andrea Lemoines, and my co-host, Joe Chimtov. Hello. Our first season, yeah, you. Welcome, Joe. Yeah. Yes, hi. <laughs> Our first season is dedicated to artifacts at the Free Library of Philadelphia. Today's show, episode seven, is Now is the Time a line taken from Dr. Martin Luther King's Jr.'s speech to a Philadelphia crowd on August 3rd, 1965. It connects three historical figures, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., Stephen Gerrard, and Toussaint Louverture. The stories you'll hear today from our guests are based on and connected to photographs of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. King's visit to Philadelphia on August 3rd, 1965 to protest against Gerard College segregationist admission policies. As Dr. King referred to Gerard College campus, a kind of Berlin Wall to keep God's colored children out. The protest was against the school admission policy started back in 1848 by French philanthropist and banker Stephen Gerard, who became an American citizen. In his will, he stipulated that Gerard College admit only white poor male orphans. More than 100 years later, and during the Civil Rights Movement, this discriminatory policy was still in practice. And you may be wondering what this has to do with special collections, because our podcast is about the connection to special collections. So it's based on photographs from the march that we have. We have a collection of those photographs, the negatives. The photographs are taken by Charles T. Higgins, or Higgins, who was a photographer for the Evening Bulletin which was a Philadelphia newspaper that seized publication in January 1982. Those photographs are located in the print and picture collection of the Free Library of Philadelphia. The collection itself is home to a variety of graphic materials that include fine art prints, photographs, drawings, posters, and artist books. The collection itself contains over 20,000 images of Philadelphia. Uh, They're both historical and modern, and uh, it includes photographs and ephemera 
from the 1876 Centennial Exhibition in Philadelphia's Fremont Park. Many of the images, uh, by the way, including the ones that we have of Dr. Martin Luther King, can be seen online. They've been digitized, and they're accessible from the Free Library's digital collections. Yeah, I've looked through those collections, Joe. There are some amazing, beautiful things in that sure collection. I'm really, highlight- I'm really happy we're highlighting the pictures from the Gerard College protest. So our first guest will be Ms. Marlon Merritt. She is recently published author, professional singer, and former free library employee who attended the march as a teenager. She will talk about experiences and what she remembers in addition to the segregationist admission policy. Marlon remembers that people, including herself, were angry about the fact Gerard established the Gerard College Trust with $6 million, money that was thought to have been stolen from Toussaint Louverture, leader of the Haitian Revolution, adding salt to the wound. You can Google Marlon's blog post titled Reflecting on Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s Visit to Philadelphia, a personal account. We based our podcast today partly on this article that she wrote. It's a blog on the Free Library website. Right. And our second guest is Kathy Haas. She's Director of Historical Resources at Gerard College. And I think at this point, I, I will say that Gerard College is not a college. It's like a misnomer almost. It is an elementary school, middle school, and high school. It's a full boarding school. So Kathy will speak about the change in admission policies at Gerard College and about the great work that the school does today. She'll also talk about the evidence or lack thereof of Stephen Gerard's connection to Toussaint Louverture and how that story remains a really important narrative to the civil rights movement and narrative in the 60s. Yeah, I'm excited to hear more about that narrative too, like oral history in the Black community is our history. And I think it's going to be really exciting to talk about how that history is very much tied to the protests. So our third guest is Professor Marlene Doubt. She's a professor of African Diaspora Studies in the Department of African Studies and the Program in American Studies at the University of Virginia and serves as Associate Director of the Carter G. Woodson Institute for African American and African Studies. She's a specialist in Caribbean, U.S. African American, and French colonial literary and historical studies. She was recently interviewed in The New Yorker. Y'all should read that interview. It is very good. She will talk about Toussaint Louverture and his role as leader of the only successful slave revolt in modern history against European powers. Hello to all of you, and we're very excited to have you here. Wow. Yes, sweet. Yeah, thank you. Thank, thank yeah, you all thank for you. coming. All right, Marlon. Yes. You're the first one up. I am so glad to have you. And uh, without the um, blog post that you had written, I think it was last year, of course, we wouldn't have, be having this podcast. So you are the basis. That article is the basis for this show. I'll just say a couple more things about you. You are an incredibly successful jazz vocalist. You lived in London and New York. You have written, it just came out, incredibly entertaining and fun book called The Actor, which everyone should buy. You come from an incredible family. Your father was Jimmy Merritt from uh, the Art Blakey and the Jazz Messengers. Just anybody who knows about jazz will know that band. And your brother was on the band of Conan O'Brien. You come from an incredibly illustrious family. So before I ask you to tell us about what you remember as a, how old were you as a marcher when you were marching? 14, 15? Well, the time that I wrote about in the article, the Gerard College protest, I was 15. Yeah, you're only 15 years old. And before I ask you, like, tell us what you remember and stuff like that, 
I just wanted to provide a little bit more context. So the march happens in the summer of 65. In 1954, we have a landmark Supreme Court decision of uh, Brown versus Board of Education. And that stipulates that uh, racial segregation in public schools violates the 14th Amendment. So that's in 54. And it guarantees equal protection to everybody. And then in 55, 1955, you have a lawsuit. You have six students who are denied admission to Girard College, and that's in 1955. So, so after that, that court decision, it's hard to enforce. And one of the schools that does not enforce it is Girard College right here in Philadelphia. So they sue the school, and as a defense, and I'm not, I'm not going to get into the complexities, but I guess it's kind of argued that Girard College is a private school, mm-hmm. and they're not bound to that law. And so we jump ahead like 10 years and you have the Civil Rights Act of 1964, Civil Rights Act, which is, you know, ending segregation in public schools, which takes us to the summer of 1965 when Dr. Martin Luther King visited the protest. And the one thing I will say, and you can talk about this later when when you you tell us, is that we can't forget Cecil B. Moore, that, you know, he was a lawyer. He was a civil rights activist, head of Philadelphia's NAACP chapter, a councilman. And for years, he led protests and legal battles to integrate the school, Gerard College. He started a protest in May 1st of that year, 1965. And it kind of gathered momentum. And it led to the summer protest, which Martin Luther King joined in 1965. And so I just wanted to put that as, as context. So what do you remember? Is it fresh in your mind? What would, would it feel like being a teenager? Tell us everything you know. Well, I just remember the energy of the time itself. I wrote in the article that I was inspired by Dr. King to attend the March on Washington. But at the time, I was only 13 or 14. And I mistakenly told my mother that this is what I was going to do. I was just going to get on a bus by myself and go there. And she took me to her mother and they both said, no, this is not going to happen. You're not doing this. But I was so swept up in the emotion of the times, which um, the 60s were, you know, as you know, from all the legislation that happened during that time, it was just filled with the energy of change. And so I felt, even as a teenager, that I had to be a part of it. So that April I had gone, uh, the April of uh, 65, I had gone to the biggest Vietnam protest to that time in in Washington, D.C. by myself. This time I didn't tell my mother or my father. I didn't go to Gerard College, but I went went to hear Dr. King speak uh, in West Philadelphia. And, you know, I couldn't see him. There were so many people. But you could hear him, and just the energy of his voice was just so inspiring. Were you, as a teenager, were you aware of the legislation prior to that? Did you know who Cecil B. Moore was? Oh, well, everybody in Philadelphia at that time, every Black person at least, knew who Cecil B. Moore was. He was the Johnny Cochran of his (laughs) time. He was uh, known for the big cigar, the rings, the beautifully tailored suits. He was immaculately dressed. He was fiery. Um, He was a much more, what can I say? um, uh, He was a very different character from Dr. Martin Luther King. He was flamboyant. He was not humble. 
and people loved him. He, he was the impetus for a lot of change in Philadelphia that allowed uh, inclusion for all minorities. Mm-hmm. And he wasn't an angel, but he did a lot. Right. I know that last year in uh, celebration of Black History Month, you had volunteered to write the blog post. And then when I was reading it, you had mentioned something about Toussaint Louverture and the narrative between uh, him and Stephen Girard. And I had I'd never heard of it. Now, you know, I'm not a Philadelphian, but I asked other people, they had never heard of it either. Tell me more about that. Well, you know, the whole Toussaint Louverture, Stephen Girard thing was baked into the DNA of Philadelphians, Black Philadelphians at that time. I don't know if the generation now knows anything about that, but I certainly grew up with that. And everybody I knew around me grew up with this now probably mythology that Stephen Gerard had uh, attained his great wealth through theft from Toussaint Louverture, a really brutal betrayal of trust. And you have to understand at that time, everything in the city, you everywhere you look, I mean, Gerard Avenue, Gerard Estates, there were Gerard Bank branches all over the city. Gerard was a name you could not get away from in the city of Philadelphia. It was in your face constantly. So this was just a rallying cry to try to right a historical wrong, not only relative to Gerard College, but relative to the betrayal, allegedly, of Saint Louverture by Stephen Gerard. Right. And that took me back when I read your article because, uh, you know, as a librarian, we have to like uh, check things. So, and I guess this will give us a good segue to uh, Andrea, who will uh, interview Kathy Haas from Gerard College. Thank you, Marla. I'm sure you're going to come back at some point in the interview. Okay. Thanks, Joe. Yeah, that just brings up so much when we think about how different communities and how we all keep track of history, right? And keep track of events. Well, Kathy, this is where your expertise really comes in, right? Uh, yeah, I'm the history person at Gerard College, so. Yeah, this is perfect. And so thank you so much for joining us today. Can you tell us just in general, like more about Stephen Gerard? And also, too, what is his connection to Toussaint Louverture? Sure. So in terms of Stephen Gerard's connection to Toussaint Louverture, as far as we've been able to figure out from the historical record, there really isn't a lot of connection. The story that Stephen Gerard took money from Toussaint Louverture seems to have emerged in a biography in the 1870s, in 1877, by a man named Grignon Lacoste. And it doesn't seem to appear any time in Girard's lifetime or, you know, Toussaint's lifetime. Stephen Girard died in 1831. And we have Stephen Girard's papers at the school, and there's not correspondence between them, except for one letter of introduction, uh, which has to do with a ship that's uh, just doing regular commerce in Haiti in the 1790s. But there's no correspondence. There's no reference to it in the papers that we've been able to find. And in fact, during Stephen Gerard's lifetime in 1824, the Haitian government did ask him about some money that they claimed that he might have, but it was related to materials that white Haitians had supposedly entrusted to him during the revolution and then never reclaimed. They never made any kind Mm. of request um, related to Toussaint Louverture. And clearly, you know, if they thought that he had taken money from Toussaint Louverture, they probably would have mentioned that at that time. Mm -hmm. So as I say, the story seems to have turned up first in this 1877 biography. 
However, it's a very important story in the civil rights movement to desegregate the school because the movement to desegregate Girard College actually begins long before 1965. Mm-hmm. It actually begins even in the 1890s. And the person who sort of really got the ball rolling in the 1890s was a man named Nathan Massell, who was an African-American physician and Black activist here in Philadelphia. Um, and in fact, in 1891, he helped a young Black male uh, apply for admission at Girard. Uh, that application was unsuccessful, but he was really the first to challenge this aspect of the will. And we know that Nathan Massell was familiar with the story in this 1877 biography. Actually, his brother, Charles, actually did the English translation of that biography. And so we know that Nathan Massell was very familiar with this story, and he used it in his speeches and in his attempts to force the school to, to be more open. And so from there, it became embedded in the civil rights story um, from the very beginning. And I know that it remained an important aspect of the civil rights story all the way through the events that we were talking about in the 1960s. So that's sort of the nutshell version. (laughs) Thank you. I feel like you really ran through that. There's a lot of information, a lot of history to it. And that very much points out like the history of how we got to that day, right? Of how this narrative is so tied into the civil rights movement, especially around uh, desegregation at Girard College. So thank you so much. I appreciate it. And you also, and thank you also for pointing out how important that is to the narrative and how Marlene was saying it was just embedded in the civil rights moment, like at that time. So, you know, like thinking about the history of Girard College, can you just tell us about the work going on at Girard College now? Tell us more about the school, who attends, what the school looks like right now. Uh, Sure, I'd love to. So as Joe mentioned, uh, the term Girard College is a little bit confusing to a lot of people because it is an elementary through high school. We have grades one through 12. The very long and hard fought uh, struggle to desegregate the school was successful in 1968. Um, so the marches led by Cecil B. Moore, the rallies led by Dr. King, um, and many others led to a lawsuit that forced the desegregation of the school in 1968, when the first four Black students and the first two students of Asian descent entered the school. The school went co-ed in 1984, um, so another another big change. Mm-hmm. And Today, we still are serving the mission of helping uh, financially disadvantaged, academically capable students. We are still a boarding school. It's a five-day boarding program. Obviously, things have been a little strange this year with COVID, mm-hmm. but um, we are still a, we still run a boarding program. The population of the school is overwhelmingly students of color. Um, it's over 98% students of color. Oh, wow. Um, and it's slightly more than 50% girls. I think this year it might be 55-45, but it's something in that range. Mm-hmm. So um, we serve about 300 students at the moment. And it all of the students get a full scholarship. Uh, everything is paid for, you know, academics, the boarding component, all of that. So it is a full scholarship boarding school. We have a 43 acre campus and it is our mission to serve students and to prepare them for successful lives after Girard and to make an impact on their communities. That is amazing. Thank you for sharing that. Because I mean, again, as not being a Philadelphian, I just remember like driving around and it's a big campus and that wall is big and not really knowing what's behind it. 
and not understanding the college. That was a really good explanation. And thank you also for talking about just how successful the civil rights movement was there. You said it was 95% students of color now. I mean, that really does point out to how successful yeah, the civil rights movement was for desegregating that school. And also, like hearing you, I feel like it's probably much more reflective of the neighborhood it's in right now as well, being in North Philly. Yeah, we are at the confluence of several neighborhoods, um, mm-hmm. sort of Fairmount, Brewery Town, Francisville. Yeah. And so um, it it's a very vibrant, a vibrant place. That is so great. And also, too, I've been doing a little bit of research, just kind of Googling and looking things up about the school. I saw that y'all have one of the largest days of service on MLK Day, I think in the city or in the country. Yeah, that is a partnership with Global Citizen, who coordinates the largest Martin Luther King Day of service in the country. And we have been the host site for a number of years for that on MLK Day. And again, uh, this year was a little different because of COVID, but normally in the past several years, there have been a number of events at the school. There's been a large community fair Uh, a job fair. There have been performances on Martin Luther King Day by the Philadelphia Orchestra in our chapel. So we have been the signature site for this global citizen Martin Luther King Day of Service. And during those days, the days of service, does Gerard College or does anyone really talk about the history of the protests and talk about MLK coming to the school? Is that highlighted in the celebrations? Yes, it, it is something that is highlighted, um, certainly, you know, in sort of the discussions and the introductions, that connection is made. And then also the folks who were involved and were marching with Cecil B. Moore in the 1960s, the Cecil B. Moore Philadelphia Freedom Fighters have come every year and they have workshops where people can meet them and hear from them and hear their stories and they have photographs and things like that. Also in the past few years, we've put up a temporary exhibition that we have about the overall history of desegregation at Girard, and that's been present at the community service fair so people can see that and learn more about the history. So we've been trying to integrate that so when people come to the Martin Luther King Day of Service, they can learn more about it, both from us at Girard through the exhibit, but also through the experiences of the people who lived that history and made that history. And they, the um, Cecil B. Moore Freedom Fighters have been an integral part of it for a long time. That's beautiful. Thank you so much, Kathy. And I'm glad to learn about that because I think, well, We'll see how this pandemic goes. But the next time y'all have a day of service, I will definitely be there. So will I. Yeah, right? We will be there. We'll make sure some FLP folks are there. So thank you so much for explaining the history of Stephen Gerard. I've lived in Philadelphia for 20 years, and I've never really understood Gerard College. So this was actually pretty enlightening. And this is a great segue, again, back to you, Joe, to talk deeper into this and really talk about Toussaint Louverture. Thank you. Yeah, it's like... We have Dr. Martin Luther King, Cecil B. Moore. Then we go back to Stephen Gerrard, French mm-hmm. banker, and his mysterious connection to St. Louverture. And I guess the evidence points that Stephen Gerrard, whether he did or didn't get duped by Toussaint Louverture, he pro- you know, the evidence shows that he wasn't, but that doesn't matter. One thing that we know for sure, and Professor Doubt, this is where you're going to come in. One thing we know for sure is that Toussaint Louverture, and we're going to talk about who he was because we haven't talked about who he was, that he was duped by Napoleon. He was duped by Napoleon de Bonaparte in a really bad way and really betrayed by France. So that's something that I want to talk about. I was doing just a little bit, some research on who Toussaint Louverture was. We know that in 1793, and you'll correct all my mistakes, Professor. Yeah, don't <laughs> worry, you'll have that chance. So in uh, 1793, we have Toussaint Louverture joining a slave revolt in uh, St. Dominique, which we'll 
become Haiti. So that's in 1793. He joined a, a revolt that was already in progress that was started in 1791. And he, he's a very successful commander. And so much so that he rises to that position of commander. And he's fighting with the Spanish against the French colonialists in Haiti. And then, so that's in 73, he, he becomes involved. In 1794, he switches sides and he joins the French to fight against the Spaniards because of a declaration uh, by the French National Convention freeing all slaves. And Spain and England at the time did not want to abolish slavery. So he switches sides and then he becomes very successful again. And in doing so, he inflicts huge losses as a successful military commander against the Spaniards and the British. In 1801, he's super successful. He frees the slaves in Saint-Dominique and he does so against the commands of Napoleon. And it is in that year, 1801, that he creates a new constitution for Saint-Dominique, making him the de facto governor general for life and establishing Catholicism as the main religion. So that's 1801. In 1802, despite Toussaint's allegiance, he was always faithful to France. And the professor will talk more about this. But despite that, in 1802, Napoleon fears that he's losing control over what was his uh, very profitable sugar colony. So he sends an army to Haiti, a very large army, and they bring back, not that Toussaint fought against them, he was kind of tricked into going back, but they bring him back to France and they place him in jail without a trial. But it was based on the belief that he was conspiring to fight against the French and to expel them from Saint-Dominique, which that, I believe, is not the case. In that same year, France ironically restores slavery to its colonies. They want to ensure control over the colonies. And then finally, in 1803, Toussaint Louverture dies in jail, like I said, without ever being tried or convicted. His only wish was to abolish slavery in Haiti, and that did not happen under his command. So welcome, Professor Dodd. Please enlighten us. I know that Toussaint comes into the conversation because of Stephen Girard of the association of the money. So I wanted to really focus on who Toussaint Louverture was and why he's such an important figure for us to talk about during uh, Black History Month. Well, thank you for um, inviting me into this very fascinating conversation about the connection between the city of Philadelphia and Toussaint Louverture. I just love to see all these connections being made, especially in uh, during Black History Month. Toussaint Louverture was born in the colony, the French colony of Saint-Domingue, which later would become Haiti, as you mentioned. He's believed to have been born in the 1740s. He had two parents, however, who were born on the continent of Africa and who were victims of slave trafficking, of human trafficking, and were forcibly brought to the island. They had a rather large family, but Toussaint Louverture kind of makes himself indispensable to the people who are enslaving him. And so he is able to get emancipated by the 1770s. There are these kinds of complicated laws by which enslaved people were able to either negotiate or save for their freedom um, based on the laws in the colonies. So, so this happens. And interestingly enough, Toussaint Louverture by this time is partnered with a woman named Suzanne. 
And she remains enslaved and their children remain enslaved while he is a free man. But as you mentioned, once the slave rebellion breaks out in 1791, he pretty quickly joins in, but he doesn't kind of ascend to the role of leader of the rebellion until later, till around the end of 1792, 1793 even. And the impetus for the slave rebellion is that plantation slavery in on the island of Saint-Domingue is extremely harsh. The French, in just over a century of occupying this island, so they become official sort of under, it becomes officially under their control in 1697. But by the time the revolution breaks out in 1791, they had forcibly transported almost 1 million captive Africans onto the island, but only 465,000 remained due to a combination. And that also includes in that number, those who were born on the island. And this is due to a combination of disease, really harsh punishments, um, and, and just harsh working conditions in general. And it was a very depraved atmosphere. And all of the white travel writers, whether they were British or French, um, who wrote travel narratives, commented on the violence of the slavery in this particular colony. So so that, I think, is important context for understanding how and why the rebellion breaks out when it does in August of 1791. A lot of people talk about the influence of the French Revolution, and the French Revolution did affect things in Saint-Domingue. So, of course, the French Revolution beginning in the summer of 1789, but not in the ways that we might sort of think. The free people of color begin to agitate for their rights using that language of liberty and equality. But even the free people of color who are being blamed eventually for this, uh, the revolt and rebellion that breaks out in August of 1791, point out that the enslaved people started rebelling way before that. It's just that August of 1791 is when general insurrection breaks out. And Toussaint Louverture is not believed to have been at the ceremony of Bois Caimont, which took place on a plantation in Mont Rouge on August 14, 1791. And within about 10 days, the entire northern plain is on fire. So the enslaved set fire to the plantations and the workhouses. Toussaint Louverture enters the frame really definitively in this famous uh, speech he issues in August of 1793 at Camp Turel. Um, and he says, you know, I want liberty and equality to reign in Saint-Domingue, and I'm going to make that happen. And he says, fight with me for the same cause. And so he actually, by leading this rebellion, even though he's on the side of Spain, as you mentioned, this convinces the two French commissioners, Santonax and Paul Verrel, who've come to the island to restore order, quote unquote, that they must abolish slavery because what Toussaint Virtue is trying to negotiate with the Spanish is exactly that. Whichever side is going to abolish slavery is the side that he, he wants to be on. And so after the French National Convention abolishes slavery in the entire French empire, which are their, all their overseas colonies, um, in February 1794, a few months later, Toussaint Louverture is going to rejoin the side of the French and help to expel the British and the Spanish from the island, establish himself, as you mentioned, as the sort of de facto head of this island, which does not fail to elicit the ire of Napoleon Bonaparte, who has since risen to power back in France and sends his brother-in-law, Leclerc, to the island with an expedition initially of between 20 to 40 to 30,000 French troops. But by the end of the expedition, the numbers are reaching towards 80,000. So the French really want it back. Unfortunately for Toussaint Louverture, 
there are a lot of factions in the colony that are that are complicated in terms of who's fighting on whose side. And um, one of the things that precipitates his downfall is that while initially Henri Christophe, who will eventually reign as king over independent Haiti, you know, he tells Leclerc and the French expedition, no, you can't land. And in fact, he has harsh words. He says, if you, you know, land, come to this island anyway, and you persist, I'll burn it down, essentially. And then even on the ashes of, you know, these ruins, I will fight you. But Henri Christophe engages in a negotiation outside of, you know, Louverture's order. So outside of the chain of commands with Leclerc. He basically says, you know, it's a different government that abolished slavery. That was under the Jacobins. We now have a directory government in France. We need laws that, you know, are, are sanctioned by France that specifically say that there's no slavery here. And Leclerc essentially promises that he's going to get these laws and show, show them to Christophe. And whether Christophe is interested in the power for himself, as some of Toussaint Louverture's biographers would have it, or whether he really sort of believes Leclerc's promises is open for debate, but he does defect to the side of the French. And this precipitates a number of other defections of key generals, um, including Jean-Jacques Dessalines, who will be the first independent ruler of independent Haiti, who makes himself an emperor um, in sometime in 1804. And this eventually, you know, sort of weakens Toussaint Louverture's power and role. His motives for retiring. So Toussaint Louverture retires in May of 1802, but the French government continues to accuse him of, and this is the part that might be interesting for your listeners uh, for the Stephen Girard story, the French government accuses him of continuing to plot and foment the ongoing slave rebellion because there are enslaved, formerly enslaved people who the French are still sort of thinking about as their property to a certain extent because they want to bring back slavery, who are not, who are never really joining the side of the French. And so the, pur the purpose of Christophe and Dessalines joining with the French was to get those people in opposition to sort of stop and fall under French authority. Well, Toussaint Louverture you know, he defends himself. He says, I went back home to my plantation in uh, in Gonaive, he had one, and in Enery, and I didn't, you know, do these things that you're accusing me of. And the other thing they accuse him of is hiding money and hiding mm -hmm. treasures and stealing money from the French coffers. And so when he's arrested in June of 1802, he arrives in France about August 1802. He's transported to this dungeon, this prison near the border of Switzerland um, called the Fort du Jura. And a general, a French general named General Caffarelli comes to the fort. He goes to Toussaint Louverture's cell and he begins a series of interrogations. Toussaint Louverture is very ill during these interrogations. It is way too cold in this, it's frequently below zero, so below freezing, Celsius that is. And you have to remember he's also from Saint-Domingue He's from the island. He's never been in this cold climate and not being given wood for his fire, not being given adequate provisions and food and water. So he's very dehydrated, feverish a lot. Then he develops a cough. He's got this constant cough. He's complaining all the time. And yet this general is there, you know, trying to get him. He's like pestering him. And, and, and the interesting thing about it is that he has no shame, this French general. I mean, he writes it all down and it just kind of gives you a sense of the way that the French really did not treat Black people in general 
as human beings deserving of medical care, deserving of food and water, deserving of their sympathy and humanity. And so when Caffarelli writes up this report, he's like, I asked him about the money. He claimed Christoph stole it. He doesn't have it. And I don't believe him at all. He's just, you know, a liar. And then there are reports that Toussaint Louverture's wife was also abused and interrogated in this manner where they kept pestering her and asking her in France, she was incarcerated separately, where is the money? Where is the money? And her children, her son Isaac, um, wrote a memoir that is sort of, you have to kind of read between the lines when he talks about his mother, because of course he's kind of protecting her. But the newspapers at the time reported that, you know, this horrible treatment that she had lost feeling in parts of her body from the things that they did to her. And this was really after the fact, after the whole family has been arrested, all so that they could find this money that is perhaps the same money that Stephen, uh, Stephen Girard is accused of, of stealing. It's, it's interesting because the one-liner, if you know very little about Toussaint Louverture, uh, the one-liner is that he led the only modern slave revolt, which he did. But it's almost like a success story. But when you start learning more about him, it's just a sad tragedy. You know, it's, it's almost like the exact opposite. Uh, the other thing that I found interesting, I'd read what you had written, and you kind of used that as a microcosm of the criminal justice system and how it unfairly treats people based on the color of their skin, which is exactly what we see with Toussaint Louverture. You link the two. Can you talk a little bit more about that and what your thoughts are? Absolutely. I mean, I think it's it's really clear that Every, I mean, and it also, it's about a history of torture as well, because, yeah. you know, the, some of the things that they do to him, as you read in the article, um, some of the things they do seem like, well, is that really that big of a deal? But when you think about how it's designed to humiliate him. So one of the things they do is they're like, we're stripping you of your title as general. And in Toussaint Louverture's memoirs that he wrote to defend himself while he was incarcerated, because initially he's incarcerated with a servant named Max Plaisir, who kind of writes down his testimony because Toussaint Verture is very, very ill and can't write this testimony himself. And he basically says, my honor, my honor, over and over again. And so they're like, oh, he cares so much about his honor. Let's take away his title. Let's take away his clothes. So they strip him of his uniform. And then they start doing things that are much more classic tactics of terror, which is they take away his clock so he never knows what time it is because it's dark and it's a dungeon. And then they start really kind of disrupting his sleep, entering his cell at all times of day, walking around, pacing. And again, because they write these reports, they're saying, yeah, you know, he's a little bit disturbed now because he's really not sleeping. And to me, this just goes to show that you know, the history of incar mass incarceration that we talk about now, that it has origins in, of course, um, slavery, which we link it to much more sort of in the U.S. context. But the French were doing things like this, not just to Toussaint Verture, because in that same prison where he was, were other uh, there was Jean Quinat, another freedom fighter from Saint-Domingue. There was eventually André Rigaud as well, who was Toussaint Verture's rival. And if we even sort of extend it more broadly, Thomas Alexandre Dumas, the first quote-unquote black general um, in, the, in the French army, was actually imprisoned, incarcerated by Napoleon after the Egypt expedition. And in Tom Rice's biography of Thomas Alexandre Dumas, father of the famous novelist and playwright uh, Alexandre Dumas of, of like Three Musketeers, it's the same thing. The French are 
poisoning him. They are like met doing medical experiments on him. And it's just, when you read it all together, it's, it, these are not isolated incidents to me. They are part of a broader picture that really, to me, speaks to the world that we live in. And I think we have a lot of lessons to learn from it for that reason, that the fight and struggle against mass incarceration and punishment in this manner is global. And we see these patterns kind of repeating where, especially where Black people are being incarcerated. Professor Dalt, while you were uh, speaking, I'm wondering, did this money that they were so desperate to extract from Toussaint uh, Louverture, did it really exist? And the other question I had was, do you think that they went to these lengths with the torture and the humiliation to sort of just break him as a, a man and to send a message to any other Black revolutionaries on the island like this too could happen to you? I think it's hard to say in terms of the message that the French, I'll tackle the last part first, the, the message that the French hope to send with this because they try to cover it up actually. And they try to cover it up because they know already that his arrest according to French officers themselves, has inflamed the revolutionaries anew. As even those like Christophe and Dessalines, who had initially defected, it creates more conflagrations and more conflict. And the French officers say that was a huge mistake that the French government arrested Toussaint Louverture. And one French officer in particular writes in his journal and says, I knew from that moment forward that we would never, ever be able to hang on to this colony. And they went to great lengths to cover it up. The French newspapers did not report that Toussaint Louverture had died. In fact, one French newspaper that was not an official paper leaked the information at the end of April. So Toussaint Louverture dies in, on April 7th, 1803. He, they leak it at the end of April. Then a British newspaper picks it up. And then you start to see the story kind of travel around and be repeated and get it get added onto. But the story of the torture is really embedded in the archives in those journals. So they just say kind of the newspapers how sad it is that he died. In terms of the money... All of the, the Haitian revolutionary generals, the, the black generals of Saint-Domingue, did amass massive amounts of money. And when Toussaint Louverture goes home to his plantation in, in May, as I mentioned, he has two different plantations. They're both continuously raided. So sort of my feeling is that if he was keeping his money there, it was likely stolen and looted by French officers who talked about the same one who lamented, you know, that the French had made this mistake in arresting Toussaint talked about how he himself was engaged in a raid on Dessalines' house. So if there was this money, there's no way that Toussaint Louverture had it on his person when he went to France. And when he said he didn't know where it was, that was probably the truth. But to this day, there is still a large sort of legend that says that, you know, he buried this money somewhere on the island. And so different people have over the years tried to like go and find and lead expeditions to go and try to find Toussaint Louverture's money. Uh, but for his account, he claimed that Christophe took the French part of the money, the, the money that Toussaint was holding as part of you know, his, his, his official capacity as a French, as an officer of the French government. That money, he claims that Christophe was the one who took it. Ah, okay, thank you. Well, thank you all. Now, before I pass it on to Andrea for her final comments, I'd like to thank you all for, uh, for joining. I think it was a very enlightening conversation. You know, when you listen to the narratives and the stories, it, it's not only that it's, it's just horrible, 
and unfair, but it's so hypocritical. You know, you have Toussaint in, uh, in France, and it's what France represents, which is liberté, égalité, fraternité. It just points to the hypocrisy. And then in the U.S., where you have the Declaration of Independence with life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness. It's just people who are, are looking for fairness and equality. I'll leave it at that. Andrea, and if anybody wants to add their parting thoughts before we leave, uh, feel free to do so. Thank you all for, uh, for coming. Yeah, thank you all for this. I am just sitting here in awe in processing and thinking about how long we've been fighting as Black people, how global the fight has been, and how deeply felt it has been. So I actually thought of this quote that I wanted to end off with from Martin Luther King Jr., just thinking about the life, the struggle, the tortures of Toussaint, and kind of like putting them together. So it's a letter. It's the quote is from a letter that Martin Luther King Jr. wrote while he was sitting in a Birmingham jail on April 16, 1963. He said, we know through painful experience that freedom is never voluntarily given by the oppressor. It must be demanded by the oppressed. And so I've just been thinking about that a lot as all of you were talking and sharing your experiences and thinking about how deeply and how long this struggle has been and how we are continuing this struggle on in this Black History Month. So I just want to end as saying, you know, as a Black woman living in the city, living in Philadelphia, I want to thank Black Philadelphians, family, community, and our ancestors for their vision of a better future. Ashe. Thank you, Marlene. Thank you, Marlon and Kathy, for joining us today. I want to wish you and everyone listening a really just a joy-filled Black History Month. Thank you for sharing this knowledge with us, and thank you for bringing your energy and your passions to this podcast. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you all. All right. Thank you all. Take care.